We're going to turn to the Bible now, if you've uh, brought your Bible with you. Um, We're in a series that we uh, have started a few months ago in Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And uh, we're up to chapter 4. So uh, if you're a visitor or a guest here, um, you've joined us right in the middle of the series. It's a bit of a hinge, um, so uh, as Paul changes tack a little bit. So if you want to follow the reading, it'll be on the screen if you've got your Bibles or a device with you to follow it. So chapter 4, we'll read from verse 3. Paul writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There's a change of tack as we move into this chapter uh, with Paul. First three chapters of Ephesians, he's outlined the gospel in great detail. Great song of praise as it begins. The great purposes of God in Christ Jesus. He paints that portrait of personal salvation. How an individual can be saved. But he also paints that landscape of salvation that it's bigger than an individual. That Jesus' coming is part of a cosmic renewal. That Jesus is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. It's so much bigger. And he calls to himself a new humanity, a new society, a new creation. And then there's that wonderful prayer for the church in chapter 3. That they may be strengthened in their faith. They might know the wonder of God's love and the indwelling of Christ in their hearts. And as you read Ephesians, you do sense a change in Paul's kind of uh, approach. He turns from sort of exposition to exhortation. From kind of preaching, you know, getting really stuck into the gospel, but now to teaching the outworking of that gospel. He has moved from what God has done for us to what he wants us to be doing. And Paul's great concern is for the church. That it be all that it can be 
in Christ Jesus. So let's just pray together. Father God, we thank you for the Bible. Lord, we'd be lost without it. It gives us a light to our feet, to our path. And we thank you that we can have it in our own hands. We can read it at home, wherever we are. And we pray together that we would learn more of your truth today. That the words that you spoke through Paul to the church around Ephesus, you would speak to us too. And that we would hear what you're saying to us through it. In Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've heard of uh, the Contiki expedition. Anyone ever heard of the Contiki? Oh, gosh, more than I thought. There you go. 1947, it was a journey by raft across the Pacific Ocean from South America to the Polynesian Islands. There was a great film made about it, if you've seen the film, by a Norwegian explorer, uh, Thor Heyerdahl. I should have got uh, Carl to do the pr- correct pronunciation of Norwegian name. But there you go. But you may not have heard of this expedition, the Antiki. Okay, this is the Antiki for veteran British adventurers with a combined age of 259 set off across the Atlantic on a raft made of industrial plastic pipes and a garden shed. <laughs> there they are. The skipper was Anthony Smith, 84, who said he organized the voyage to prove that there was more to being an octogenarian than the weekly trip to Sainsbury's. However, their adventure became a little bit more epic. After mid-Atlantic, it was blown off course about 110 miles. This unplanned diversion added about 2,800 nautical miles to their journey. But you will be glad that after nine weeks at sea, they made it to their destination safe and sound. Thanks. Why do I show you a picture of the antique? Paul is concerned for the church around Ephesus that it doesn't get blown off course. And he seeks to put in place, through his writings, some safeguards. That you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunningness and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Paul is well aware that the church of Jesus Christ has an enemy. He'll expand that much more when we get to chapter 6, when he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The church has an enemy because Christ has an enemy. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you too have an enemy. Paul spent two and a half years establishing the church there in Ephesus and the surrounding areas, and he's entrusted its future to God to the Holy Spirit, to the Lord Jesus, and to the leaders, the members, and the congregation. But he has an overriding concern of how they will continue on course in their mission for Jesus in the world. Because the enemy would like nothing more than to blow a church off course. To get it stuck in a diversion 
whether it's 110 miles off course or just to get it gone in the wrong direction completely. So in this passage, he seeks to to put these safeguards in place for them. The first one is simply walk humbly together in unity. Verse 3 says, keep the unity of the Spirit. Verse 13, he talks about reaching unity in the faith. And and you remember that unity is something that is God-given. Unity amongst God's people is not something that we strive for. We say we're going to be united. It's something that was given from the beginning. And we have to maintain. We have to protect. We have to keep it. It is so important. That's why the enemy makes it a place of attack. To divide. To bring discord. Destruction. Churches that experience disunity and division get blown off course. The enemy's tactics haven't changed. In the severest element of his tactics, there is, as we have hear about through Open Doors and the World Watch List, there is that physical violence of oppression. We have brothers and sisters in prison, all only because they believe in the Lord Jesus. Tens and tens of thousands of them. Many have been killed because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. The church is opposed. Always. And sometimes we may be lulled into a sense of security thinking, well, we, we, we don't have persecution in the UK. And, and you'd be right in saying, we, we don't. We can meet in this public building with no fears at all. You could just roll up in your car or walk to church this morning and be here without fear that you might be arrested or your family might be arrested. We, we have that freedom and thank God for that. And we need to protect it. But we do know that we do have an enemy. We are pursued. And if the definition of persecution is that we are pursued, we are persecuted. But the enemy can be much more subtle in terms of deceitfulness, in terms of false teaching. One of the things that Paul has to oppose in his writings is is a lot of the false teaching that emerges surrounding the early church. It's the tactic of the enemy to blow the church off course. Paul himself writes this letter from prison in Rome under Nero who was one of the most wicked emperors of Rome, who would just cover Christians in tar and light them to light up his gardens. He would feed them to the lions in the arena as sport. Paul knows all about the persecution that is happening all around, but he's also so concerned for the church that it doesn't get picked off or blown off course. What are some of the more subtle ways that the enemy tries to to bring Division, disappointment, disillusion, distraction, all those are very subtle things. Peter writes in his letter that, that the devil you know, prowls around. He, he likens him to a lion seeking whom he may devour. Nothing more that the enemy would like that blow you off course in your Christian faith. So that that passion for Jesus doesn't burn brightly anymore. So that passion for his church doesn't burn brightly anymore. All who love Jesus are targets. 
Sometimes he will use the circumstances of our lives. If things aren't going well for us in our lives, if we come up with, against trials and difficulties, we may think, well, where is God in this? Well, he hasn't moved. Jesus still loves you. He died for you. He has a plan for your life. And this life isn't it in its entirety. There's so much more. But sometimes circumstances can blow us off course. We wonder where God is. Sometimes even our strengths can blow us off course because we're on fire for God, but we get disillusioned with the other people who are not on fire for God. Why are they not on fire for God like I am? I know that doesn't happen here. Oh, we get fed up with a seeming half-heartedness, apathy that's in the church. We forget that actually we're in the church. Or we believe somehow that we've got all the answers and everyone else has got all the problems. If you get to that point, you know you've been blown off course. You know when other people's faults are obvious and yours aren't. Satan loves to get people isolated. We must guard against that. Keep the unity, says Paul. It is the first safeguard. To not get them blown off course as a church. It's not uniformity. Because he goes on to talk about gifts and things. But it's that unity. Humble unity. Secondly, the second safeguard is humble submission to one another. And Paul quotes from Psalm 68 verse 18. And I've struggled with this throughout this week because I think I can imagine Paul writing this letter or dictating this letter. And it's just wonderful because you know it's authentic because he gets distracted. He's had a distraction earlier on in the letter. And now he's writing it and he, whether he read it in his quiet time, Psalm 68, that morning, he just quotes it in his letter. And he says, um, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Actually, he he uses that quote for his own purpose here. Because he slightly tweaks it. But what he means is, is as he reads about David, who in joyful celebration brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Zion... Remembering that Moses had received the law on the mountain. He'd gone up and he'd come down and given it to the people. And David writes in that psalm about how the ark has come to Mount Zion. He applies it to Jesus. That Jesus descended to earth. We read about it in Philippians at the beginning of our service. He became obedient to death. Even death on the cross. But death couldn't hold him because he was perfect. Without sin. And he rose from the dead. And ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit. So Paul takes this psalm and he says, yeah, that's about Jesus. And Jesus is exalted to the highest place. From where he will one day soon return. And make all things new. But when he ascended, he gave gifts to his people. He gave the gift of the Holy Spirit. We we read about that in the day of Pentecost. He gave the gift of the Holy Spirit to everyone who believes in Jesus. And and we'll read later on that he says we need to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-off event. 
We need to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. But he gives gifts. And another safeguard that he mentions here is is that humble submission to godly leadership. He lists four groups of of church leaders in, in that early church. He says we won't be blown off course if we humbly submit to godly leadership. And these leaders are not officers created by the church or the state. I've been reading this week, and it was in the news about the Chinese state making a deal with the Vatican, saying that actually if, if there was peace between the state and the church, the Catholic church, the state might be able to appoint leaders. That's always a bad thing. When the state appoints spiritual leadership. Because it's a, it's a God appointment. It's an, about anointing. And Paul talks about the different gifts that he has given, uh, that the Holy Spirit has given to his church. He says he has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. In the writings that Paul writes in the New Testament, there are five lists of gifts in the New Testament. There's at least 20 gifts um, listed, but they're not complete. I don't believe they're complete or exhaustive. But notice that he mentions these gifts, and these gifts are people. And notice that God has deliberately shared out the necessary gifts among lots of people. There is not one person who has them all, who can be, right, this is it, I have it all. I am the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, and pastor teacher. No, he says he gives some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. And they're shared across. Even in Ephesus, if you read the accounts in Acts, he is not alone in his mission to Ephesus. He has people around him. There's Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, Erastus, Gaius, Aristarchus, Alexander. We don't hear so much about them, but they're the team. So he gives apostles like Peter and Paul who laid the foundations of the gospel truth for the church. Now, it is true that nobody possesses the same authority for shaping Christian doctrine today as those apostles. We have in the scriptures the apostles' teaching. In the early church, before they had the scriptures written for them, they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. It has authority. But Paul seems also to give no sense in these verses that he expects Jesus to stop anointing apostles for his church. In his letters, he calls other people, James, Silas, Epaphroditus, Andronicus, Junius. And Junius, by the way, is a woman. There were women apostles in the early church. I've heard it said to me that, that, that Jesus appointed 12 apostles. There are no more apostles. Well, actually, the New Testament says there are more apostles. And Paul expects Jesus to continue anointing certain men and women for apostolic leadership. And we believe in apostolic leadership. Leadership that safeguards the New Testament teaching. Leadership that pushes church forward to take new ground. Maybe translocal leadership. 
But it's God appointments. You know, if someone comes and says, I'm an apostle. Do what I say. You say, well, that's not the way it works. Jesus raises up apostles and gives them an anointing that people recognize. But we do. I do believe that God raises up apostolic leadership today. He gave some to be prophets Again, not like the prophets perhaps in the Old Testament, in our evening services, we've been going through the, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. It is absolutely breathtaking. I've never preached through Isaiah before. It is breathtaking that this man who lived 700 or so years before Jesus spoke those things about Jesus. They're described in the Bible as people who heard from God. God spoke through them. And John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, is recognized as as a prophet. And in the New Testament, there are prophets, perhaps not like Isaiah in any ilk of that, foretelling Jesus is coming because he's come. But there are certainly prophets that are raised up in the New Testament. In Acts 11, there's a guy called Agabus who predicts a famine that is coming. Prophetic ministry. There's Judas and Silas in Acts 15. It describes them who were prophets who said much to encourage and strengthen the church in Antioch. Particularly against false teaching. Prophets. Again, Agabus appears again in chapter 21 of Acts when he meets with Paul as Paul is going back to Jerusalem, takes Paul's belt off him and ties him up and says, this is going to happen to you. It's a prophetic word. That was really encouraging. But it forearmed Paul for what was to come. It didn't dissuade him. But And I believe all of us can hear from God. One of the things we do um, in our After Alpha courses, when people have come on Alpha, on Alpha and they've made a commitment to Jesus, one of the things we do is let's, have to, let's see if we can hear something from God as we pray for one another. And you'll be amazed that brand new Christians will say, oh, maybe just one word, an encouraging word, or I sense this. And we can hear from, all of us can hear from God <laughs> if we listen, if we ask him. We believe That God still speaks through one another today. We also believe that he raises up prophets today. Who bring a now word from God. Whether you like it or not that we meet in a school. Do you know one of the reasons we meet here was a prophetic word that was given to us. As a church. Make more room for God. You will not be able to contain what God is going to pour out upon you. We were too big for the building. So in that respect, it was a no-brainer, didn't perhaps need a prophetic gift. But we haven't seen the fulfillment of that prophecy yet. In fact, as a church, although we've seen people regularly come to know Jesus, we've kind of been at a plateau as a church in terms of growth. We're still waiting on God for the fulfillment of that prophecy that we will not be able to contain all that God has done. We are tempted by the enemy to say, oh, well, we've stopped growing as a church. Something must be wrong. It's not like the old days. 
That's when we need to dig in and say, we are laying a foundation for what comes after us. Like the ones who were in their just group of three or four or five who prayed that God wouldn't close the church here in Chipping Camden, that he would bring revival and we are the result of that. And we've planted two other congregations. That is a result of that. We are still waiting for the fulfillment of that prophetic word over us that we will not be able to contain. And we can't say what that looks like. What will it look like? Will it plant more churches? Will we, will we just see revival break out? Will, will we see this hall so full that we have to think again? We haven't seen the fulfillment of it. But don't get blown off course by the enemy that would want to say, well... And we want to see the prophetic amongst us. People who hear the now word from God, whether for one person or for the whole church. But always within the New Testament, prophetic words are, are, are held, they're weighed. Prophets were accountable to the church. Then evangelists. Jesus also appoints evangelists to preach the gospel effectively. Do you know in the New Testament there's only one named evangelist? His name's Philip. He's the only one named as an evangelist. If you want to read a good book, Christophet's written a book called Philip. But again, that doesn't mean there was only one evangelist. Because Jesus said, go into the whole world, all of you, and make disciples of all nations. We're all to have evangelistic. It's called witness to Jesus. In fact, Paul writes to Timothy and says, do the work of an evangelist. You may not have the gift of evangelist, Timothy, but do the work of an evangelist. Witness for Jesus. And we recognize that people that we have known of or heard of have an an incredible anointing for evangelism. Billy Graham was an incredibly anointed evangelist, without a doubt. I've heard him preach a couple of times. Unfortunately, I was at Bible college when I heard him preach once, and my friend was saying to me, it's not a very good preacher, is he? And we just waited, and he said, those of you who want to give your lives to Jesus today, and thousands, literally thousands, because he had anointing as an evangelist, preached to over 200 million people worldwide. We want to pray for the evangelist. But there are evangelists amongst us who are just great at just sharing the gospel with people. One to one. Just have no, you know, some of us are full of fear when we, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know. But we're all witnesses of Jesus. But there are some who just, they have that anointing to share the gospel with people. And then there are pastor teachers. I'm reliably informed from the Greek text that this is one group, not two groups. That that Paul talks about pastor teachers. Not the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, but pastor teachers. You You can separate those gifts, I'm sure you can. But here, Paul talks about pastor teachers. Shepherds of God's flock called to feed the sheep from the scriptures. And I just have to say that if we don't, if the church doesn't preach the scriptures, we have nothing else to say. That is our one authority. Otherwise, we're just talking about things that 
we think are right and true and good. But we are committed to the apostles' teaching, which we find in the scriptures. That's why we preach the scriptures. These pastor teachers help each of us to discover the truths of God's word. These pastor teachers are those who are called to guard the church from false teachers and from the enemy's schemes, to disciple those who are saved. But we're all called to that, aren't we? All of us are called to be pastoral. All of us are called to feed on the word of God and encourage one another from the word of God. All of us are called to guard against the enemy, to protect the unity. But Paul writes and he says, these are gifts that have been given. But they're God appointments. Now I know that leaders can get it wrong. Very aware of that. Because in the scheme of the enemy, one of the enemy's tactics for any church is to go after leaders. And we see it. And it breaks our hearts as it breaks God's hearts. Take down an influential leader and you can blow a church off course for years. We know that. But we all are under that same pursuance of the enemy who would want to blow us off course. Gifts of leadership are God given. I remember when I first felt called to kind of ministry. I rang my dad up, who was a missionary in Brazil, and I say, I think God's calling me to ministry. He said, avoid it as long as possible, son. (laughs) That was his word of wisdom. And then he qualified it, because if you're not called, it will be the most miserable thing you ever do in your life. Ministry, though, is something that we're all called to, isn't it? God may call leadership, and it may be recognized by the body, but we're all called to ministry. Leadership must not be about monopolizing ministry, but multiplying ministry. Releasing, not restricting. Equipping the body for service. That's what Paul writes, isn't it? The biblical model that Paul uses for church again and again and again is the body. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're all important to that body. We all have a part to play in that body. Imagine if Paul had said, the church is like a bus. There's one guy driving the bus and the others are sitting down watching him drive it. That's not the model of church that's in the Bible. But we've done it, haven't we? If you trace through church history... We appoint somebody to drive the bus and we all get on. As long as we agree where he's going. That's not not a body. Or, or, you know, the church is like an aeroplane. You know, you have the cabin crew running around doing all the stuff. And we wait to be served. No, it's a body. And every part has a part to play. And whether it's seen or unseen, everyone has a part to play. Because everybody can serve. Everybody can serve. 
And, and that's what we do together. We're called to serve. We're all needed. And all those spiritual gifts that Paul mentions in other passages, if you read their purpose, their purpose is to serve, to build up the body. There's not one gift given to build up one person, to exalt a person. All the gifts are given to bless the whole. The third safeguard for not getting blown off course, and I need to hurry up, is holding truth and love. What does truth and love look like? It looks like Jesus. Jesus, one who came full of grace and truth. And Paul encourages the church to speak the truth in love. It guards against deceitful schemes. Truth without love is too hard. Love without truth is too soft. But truth with love. And it's not easy, is it? Not easy. Partly why I read that passage at the beginning. I think Paul would sum it up in that letter to the Philippians. Your attitude, churches, should be that as that of Christ Jesus. If we have a desire to be more like Jesus every day, a desire, and express that desire, and seek to live it out, seek to live it out, we won't get blown off course. So Paul, in this transition, he'll go on to talk about instructions for Christian living, we'll get on to that. But this is a transition passage when he's saying, I'm really concerned that the church doesn't get blown off course. Walk together in humble unity. Submit to one another humbly and to godly leadership. But hold truth and love together. Aim for Christ-likeness. And then you won't get blown off course. Let's just pray together. I'm going to ask the band to come back.